Well, as you, most of you are aware, I have been preaching through all these I am statements that Jesus made about himself. All of them are found in John's Gospel. As I said at the beginning, there are seven of them. And although I knew all seven and although I've heard them all before, doing this series has taught me some things that I've never really noticed before in a deeper way. Firstly, all of the I am statements strongly have attachments to Jesus calling himself God. Also, all of the I am statements weren't just statements that he made about himself that he pulled out from thin air. You see, all of them were connected to an event that was going on around Jesus at the time he made them. He used everyday events as jumping off points for the teachings about himself and the teachings about God in these I am statements. Well, get ready for a race because I'm now going to very quickly paraphrase and look at each one that we've covered so far. The first one was this, I'm the bread of life. John 6, Jesus feeds over 5,000 people. Right after that miracle, he told them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In this discussion, Jesus gives an explanation of the process of personal salvation. In this discussion, he says to the people, I'm the one who can and will satisfy your eternal hunger. The next one is, I'm the light of the world. Jesus and his disciples were at the temple to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle when Jesus announced, I'm the light of the world. Each night during that week, the priests lit four large candles. When these lamps were lit, the light reflected off the golden walls of the temple, so these candles would put out a great amount of light, so much so the glow could be seen all around Jerusalem. The physical golden glow was a reminder to the Jews of the pillar of fire by which God led Israel through the darkness. At the end of each night, the priest would put out the candles. It is believed by most scholars that when the priest was putting out the candles at the end of the festival on the last night, and that great glow of God's reminder of God's care, guidance and provision was going to be gone for another year until the next festival, it was at that point Jesus cried out, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of lights. Throughout scripture, light is a symbol of the presence of God guiding and guarding his people. As the light of the world, Jesus is promising that he himself is the new care, guidance and provision for us. I am the door. After being challenged by the Pharisees for healing a blind man, Jesus says, I'm the door for the sheep. Whoever enters in through me will be saved. He will come in and he will go out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the door to heaven. I'm the one who opens and closes this gateway to the eternal life. At the same discussion, talking with these people, he also said, I'm the good shepherd. In this analogy, he compared himself to how different he is to a hard shepherd. As the good shepherd, he says, I die for my sheep, I know my sheep, and I take up my life again for my sheep. Jesus, just before Lazarus, Raised just before Lazarus was raised from the dead, he declared, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 
Lazarus, if you remember, had been dead for three days when Jesus arrived at the tomb. Martha complained and said, if you were only here earlier, my brother would still be alive. Jesus' immediate response to her was, your brother will rise again. She said, yeah, I know that. He'll rise again at the resurrection in the last days. Martha's response to Jesus' words revealed her understanding of the resurrection as a doctrine. But Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he says to her, do you believe this? This conversation between Jesus and Martha was designed to move her from a faith in doctrine to faith in him. He transformed this doctrine for her. He took the doctrine of resurrection out of a book and put it into the person himself. Jesus says, I'm the one who brings the dead people back to life and lets them live forever. Jesus is the one who defeated death by the power of resurrection. He changed the doctrine of life after death from something that happens in the future. And on that day, he made it a present day reality. Then I'm the way, the truth and the life. This was at the Last Supper. Jesus warned his disciples about his coming arrest and death. He told them he was going to leave them. The apostles couldn't understand what he meant. And finally, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, Jesus, so how can we possibly know the way? Jesus took that opportunity to teach them, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't just claim to know the way, the truth and the life to God. He claimed to be all three. It is clear from all of these examples that Jesus used everyday events as a springboard for teaching eternal truths. And the last one we're looking at today, the last I am statement is no different. Today, we are looking at the time when Jesus said, I am the vine. This is found in those readings before that Jeff just did from John chapter 15. This is the seventh and last I am statement recorded in John's Gospel. The first four were spoken publicly to the crowds, the fifth privately to Martha, then the last two privately to his disciples in the upper room. Picture the scene. Jesus and his disciples, except Judas, had already left. He'd already gone to betray Jesus. They'd just finished the Last Supper that we looked at last week where he told them he was going to be arrested and killed. While at that Last Supper, Jesus says to them, come now, let's leave. They walk from the upper room where they had supper to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested. Do you know, when you look at a map of that route, you will notice that on that route, they would have to walk past or through Herod's temple. We notice on that route, that's the way it would have had to take place. Doing that, they would have seen a prominent symbol that hung over the entrance to the, to the temple that we're told about in scripture. What is it? Well, the temple doors were adorned with embroidered, with embroidered flowers of purple, but over these spread a golden vine. Its branches hung down with a great height, and the vine was around the temple door over those purple flowers. Imagine walking past and seeing the vast material and great workmanship was a spectacular sign to anyone passing by. 
The symbol was made of gold wire and beads, delicately twisted to look like a huge golden grapevine hanging over the temple door. The golden vine that adorned this door was the image of richness and perfection. It's what it symbolised. It symbolised God's richness and perfection. Now, I know we're, not, we're told never to add anything to the Bible, and I don't believe in adding anything to the Bible, but I can imagine that it, as Jesus is walking past that door, it is there that he stops and points and says to his disciples, I am the true vine. I am now the vine that adorns with the images of richness and perfection of God. As you listened to the reading before, you would have heard how Jesus talked about different parts of farming vines. He spoke to his disciples about the whole process, really, of the farming life. Each part he spoke about referred to someone different in the farming story. Let's look at what he said and the people in this passage to see if we can unlock some great truths of how the Christian life relates to farming vines. But first, let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your word and for how rich it is. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you walked this earth and for these incredible things you said about yourself. And Father, as we today look at what it means to be vines and branches, I pray your blessing will be upon us and that you will guide us, challenge us and equip us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. The first picture, the first thing he says is, I am the true vine. Who's that? Easy. That's Jesus. Jesus was using a word picture that was familiar to his men and something that they all would have understood. You see, for one thing, grapes were central to Israel's economy. The climate of Israel is ideal for growing healthy grapes. Grape vines were a common part of the landscape. In scripture, grape vines are used quite often. In fact, they're used to represent three different symbols. What symbols are grapevines used to represent? They're used to represent the past, the present, and the future. The past vine symbolises Israel. The grapevine has always been a symbol of the nation of Israel and how God had blessed and worked through them. That's why the grapevines were over the temple door. Not just that. They weren't only on the temple, the grape vines were also on Israel coins up until the time they were conquered by Rome. They were there to show how much God had blessed and chosen Israel. Sadly, though, as a choice vine, they disappointed the gardener by producing only wild grapes. Instead of practising justice, it practised oppression. Instead of producing righteousness, it produced unrighteousness. Therefore, God had to deal with that nation and create a whole new grapevine. Well, the future vine. The future vine is found in Revelation, and it is all about God's judgment in the last days. And then, of course, we have the present vine. The present vine is what we are looking at today, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're the vines that you read about in Scripture. The vine and grapes are an incredible picture for us as his children. Speaking of us as his children, he goes on to talk about the branches. Who are the branches? You, me, us. 
Now, not that I want to make you too upset, but just like the vines are mentioned in the Bible and throughout the Bible have meaning, so do branches. But sadly, the vines are great. The vines represent God's goodness and the way God worked in Israel and how he's going to restore his people. The branches in Scripture, if you ever do a study word on branches, it's not good. I mean, according to Ezekiel 15, branches of a vine by themselves are weak. They're useless. In fact, he says branches are only good for two things, either fruit or fuel. The branch, even Jesus says, is only good for bearing or for burning. It's not good for building. The branch cannot produce anything on its own. Without the vine, it's useless. So what do we draw from this? The sooner we as believers discover that we are nothing but weak and useless branches, the better we will be able to relate to the vine. For when we know our own weakness, then we confess how much we need his strength. Next, the gardener, God. The gardener is in charge of caring for the vine, he says. Jesus says that it is, this is the work of his father, it is he who prunes the branches so they will produce more fruit. Do you know, coming from South Australia, from Adelaide, um, we have the Barossa Valley and McLaren Vale. They are both very prominent winemaking areas. If you've ever been there or if you ever go there, you will notice they are filled with one thing, grapevines. My parents would often take me with them on weekends and we would go visit wineries. I remember doing tours and how the owners used to say, this pruning process is the most important part of getting good quality fruit for our wine. All pruners must carefully be trained, or they can, if they're not properly trained, they can destroy an entire crop. Some wineries said they invested two or three years in training their pruners. It was vitally important pruners knew where to cut, how much to cut, and even what angle to make the cut. The gardener proves the branches in two ways. He cuts away dead wood that they can breed disease and insects, and he also cuts away living branches so that the life of the vine will not be so self-sufficient that the quality of the crop will be jeopardised. In fact, the gardener will sometimes cut away whole bunches of grapes, we were told, so that the rest of the crop will be a high quality do you know, I'm sure if these branches could speak, they would confess that this pruning process hurt. But I'm also sure they would also rejoice that they were able to produce more and better fruit. This is exactly what Jesus says God does. This is how God prunes. God is the gardener. He is the one that comes and cuts and prunes. Do you know, the greatest judgment God could bring to the believer would be just to simply leave them alone. Do nothing. Let him have his own way. Left to itself, the branch might produce many clusters of fruit, but they will be inferior in quality. They won't be good at all. God is glorified by a bigger crop, but also by a better crop. Notice the progression that Jesus says in John 15. We start off with no fruit, then we start off with fruit, then we get to more fruit, and he finishes with much fruit. Many Christians pray that God would make them more fruitful, but they do not enjoy the process 
of being pruned. Well, God loves us so much he prunes us. Why? Because it encourages us to bear more fruit for his glory. How does the Father prune us? Pruning does not simply mean spiritual surgery that moves, removes what is bad. It can also mean cutting away the good and the better so we might enjoy the best. Sometimes he cuts away the dead wood that might cause trouble, but often he cuts away the living tissue that is robbing you of spiritual life. Yes, pruning hurts, but it helps. We may not enjoy it, but we need it. All Christians need to be pruned to grow healthy into mature Christians. All Christians need to be pruned to grow in the direction that God wants them to grow. Sometimes he simply uses his word to convict us and cleanse us. Sometimes he must discipline us. And at times it hurts. He's removing something precious from us. But as the spiritual crop is produced, we see that the father knew what he was doing all along. He's a good gardener. This pruning may well be painful, but at times it is very necessary in our lives. This pruning may be that we need to spend less time doing the things we like to do and more time spent in doing the things God wants us to do. We should all be prepared to look at what we do in our lives, then see where we've got our priorities wrong. Let's ask God to show us where we need to prune our lives in him. Ask him to come and prune you. Let me promise you this. If you do that, it is not only a good thing to ask, it is a safe thing to ask. God as the gardener is willing to provide the expertise and the effort to cultivate and prune his vineyard. He hasn't been trained for two or three years like those gardeners in McLaren Vale. He has been doing it all his life. God wants a vineyard that produces both quantity and quantity. The pruning will produce more fruit in our lives, more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the gardener, that's the fruit he wants. Speaking of fruit, that's what he mentions. What's all this fruit about? Well, it's actually for others. The purpose of the branch is to bear fruit. Otherwise, why bother? If it's not going to bear fruit, then what's the point of it? Not every branch bears a bumper crop, but where there is life, there is always fruit. If there is no fruit, the branch is worthless. It is cut off, thrown into the fire, and it's burnt. Do you know, the word results is often heard in conversations among Christian workers today instead of fruit. Well, we must remember fruit and results are two completely different things in fact, thinking about results or striving for results is not a biblical teaching. Let me tell you this. We are never told to produce results in our scripture. Not once are we told to produce results. We are told to produce fruit. A machine can produce results and so can a robot, but it takes a living organism to produce fruit. You can't manufacture fruit because fruit comes from life. Several different kinds of spiritual fruit are named in the Bible. We bear fruit when we, win, eat, when we win others to Christ. That's found in Romans 1. We are part in fruit of the harvest. That's in John 4. As we grow in holiness and obedience, we are bearing fruit, Romans 6. And Paul considered Christians giving to be fruit from a dedicated life. 
Romans 15. So what is the fruit and what should we be growing? It is the fruit that shows we are Jesus Christ's disciples. That's what Jesus said. When you are bearing fruit, when you are being pruned, when you are doing this, they will know it will show that you are my disciples. We must remember that the branches do not eat the fruit. Others do. We're not producing fruit to please ourselves. We're producing fruit that will serve others. We should be the kind of people who feed others by our word and our works. A bit like Proverbs 10.21 says, The lips of the righteous feed many. If we are not bearing fruit, we are not fulfilling our purpose on earth. This means we're not really living. We are wasting our lives. We are nothing but useless branches. Or we can just spend time on earthly things instead of investing them in kingdom things. Our fruit is to be there for others to eat. And now for my final one for the day, the key. Now you may think, hang on, Gov. There's no mention of a key here. Jesus never says anything about a key. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong. This passage is all about Jesus using the metaphor of the vine to explain to his disciples how they can serve him in his absence. He is so close now to going, being, being arrested and being taken. How could they continue the fight for his glory? How could they bear fruit once he's gone? Well, in this passage, he's given them the key for exactly that. What is the key? What is the word? It is this. Remain. This word is used 11 times in these 11 verses. But what does this word mean? Well, the Greek word is meno, and the NIV translates it as remain. Other English versions translate it like words of continue, dwell, remain in union, abide, stay joined. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament says this word memo means this. It is an inward, enduring, personal communion with Jesus. I don't mind if your Bible says abide. I don't mind if your Bible says remain, dwell, whatever. That's what it means. Those that keep an inward, enduring, personal communion with Jesus. Eleven times. That's the key. This is the great way to explain this word. For me, there are two key words in this explanation. What two key words? These two. Personal communion. Do you know, when it comes to our relationship with God, the Bible talks about two stages. It talks about union and it talks about communion. Our union with Jesus Christ occurs when we first put our trust in him and accept him as saviour. From that point on, we have union with him and his father. However, the union we have depends totally on him. Since that time, he is the one who always lives to intercede for us. Our union isn't dependent upon ourselves. Our union is dependent upon him. But the Bible says there's a next stage in our Christian walk, and that is communion. Our communion with him depends on our faithful relationship, our personal communion to him as we trust and as we obey. 
Do you know, I can't help but think marriage is a good illustration of this, what it means to be remaining in him. Do you know, when the marriage ceremony ends, the official papers have been signed and the couple have consummated their marriage, they have a living union which has been formed and they are now one flesh. The union is there. They're married. They are husband and wife. But that union doesn't guarantee communion. Communion is something the couple has to develop. Communion is something that needs to be maintained between the two of them. Do you know I have this ring on? And inside this ring is Michelle's name, a little subscription, and also a date. This ring tells you this fella is married. Imagine after I got married and I got this ring, I thought, great, I'm married. I'm never going to have to speak to Michelle again. I'm never spoken to her again. And I treat her like dirt every day. And I go and I meet other women and I go to parties and I go and do this, that and the other. And then one day Michelle comes up to me and says, Garth, I really want to speak to you about our marriage. And I'll say, hey, there's nothing wrong with our marriage. I have the proof. We're married. This ring tells you about my, that I'm married, but it tells you nothing about my marriage. It tells you about my union, but it tells you nothing about my communion with my wife. If the new husband and wife never do things like pray together, if they neglect to talk to each other, if they refuse to share their feelings, their hopes and their disappointments, if they don't love each other and sacrificially serve each other, then their married life will soon become nothing more than a routine. They will lose their communion. They will still have their union, but they definitely won't have their union. Their marriage will lose its joy. Have you ever seen that? It is so sad. I remember I kept um, some of our wedding cards and one of them came from a lecturer at our college who taught pastoral care. And these were his words. Dear Garth and Michelle, congratulations on your marriage. And he said, now all you need to do every day when you wake up, the first question you to ask yourself is this, do I want to be married today? He says, if you do, Live it. And he says, if you don't, you don't have to do anything because it'll happen naturally of not being married today. When you have the union of a husband and wife, you see their ring. But that doesn't tell you anything. A marriage in God's design is there to have the delight of the communion of husband and wife. You can have a marriage... That is the communion. When it comes to the marriage relationship, I say this. It is a perfect example of our spiritual relationship. The union we have is foundational. It doesn't change. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 1, you already have the union because you've heard my word and you've believed in my word. That was his opening statement to these guys. But then he goes on for the rest of the chapter and talks about personal communion in building on that, on that union he has. And just like marriage, an inward enduring personal communion with Jesus demands mutual affection, attention, sacrifice 
and service. Remember, this word remain, abide, stay joined, is used 11 times in 11 verses. That's the key to this passage. That's what he is wanting to give to his disciples. The fact that I'm in union with Jesus Christ, the fact that I'm a member of his body should motivate me to have communion with him. Just as communion is the key to bring joy to the marriage relationship, communion or remaining is the same key that brings joy to our spiritual relationship. When we are remaining in Jesus and fellowshipping with him, when we are remaining in Jesus and worshipping him, when we are remaining in Jesus and meditating on his word, when we are remaining in Jesus and serving others, that enduring personal communion will allow us to enjoy him and be a blessing to others. That will allow us to be the branches fully connected to the vine and fully producing good fruit that's going to bless others. Jesus gives us a reassuring promise for those who stay connected. As believers, as believers have this inward, enduring personal commitment with him, he says that they will bear much fruit. So a great truth from this passage is this. Fruit pairing doesn't require effort on our behalf. When was the last time you saw a vine grunting and groaning to try and pop out grapes? They don't. Jesus made it clear that apart from him, you can do nothing. A branch is useless. He did not say that we would be handicapped or disadvantaged. His message without him was that we are helpless, unable to serve him efficiently at all if we don't remain. If our work doesn't begin with Jesus, continue to be stained by Jesus, and at the end, at Jesus for all his glory, then it won't last. So it is our communion with Jesus that makes it possible to bear fruit. Why? Because he's the vine and his dad's the gardener. Spiritual fruit is the natural result of our inward, enduring, personal communion with him. That's the key. So, the picture of the vine and the branch is one of partnership with God through our connection in Jesus Christ. We as God's children can grow and serve on earth because of what we receive from above. Because we have a living connection with Jesus Christ in heaven, as branches in that vine, we can draw upon Jesus' life and allow him to fill us through his Holy Spirit. As branches in the vine, we can bear fruit for his glory as we use the key of communion and remaining and abiding in him. His life can work in us and through us to produce fruit. The final I am of Jesus to his men on the night that he was arrested gave both a promise and a command. When these, two, when these men needed it most because everything was about to explode, Jesus gave them two promises. As the vine, Jesus provides all the nourishment we need in life. As the gardener, God does all that is needed to give us fruitful lives. They're the two promises he gave to his friends. Then the command, as branches remain in him. So with all that in our minds, I guess the question regarding this key, regarding this passage 
regarding the fact that Jesus says, I'm the vine, my dad is the gardener, you are the branches, bear fruit for others, the question you should ask yourself is this. How would you describe your inward, enduring, personal communion with Jesus today? Jesus is the vine. Sure, is he your vine? God wants to prune and so you bear fruit. Is God pruning you? Are you bearing fruit for others? Are you remaining thoroughly connected to him, hanging on tight to God as your life serves? Who is Jesus? He's a person that we should meet every day. We should have daily and commune with him. During the day, do we thank him for his help and his blessings? Do we trust him to assist us in our work? Do we keep the relationship healthy? Do we involve Jesus in the decisions we make and in the relationship and tasks that confront us each and every day? This is what it means to have communion with Christ and to remain in him. This is the start to knowing who Jesus really is by being committed to remaining in the vine, by allowing his Father to prune you so you will produce fruit to bless those around you. May God challenge you, but above all, may he bless you as you go out. I pray that he doesn't have to prune you too much because pruning hurts. But remember, it is there to bear fruit. And the key is, Keep that personal communion going with him. That's what will see you through and see others along the road with you. God bless.